I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. I read about David Glazer's project, the Ben Urey Gallery and Museum going fully virtual on LinkedIn. Caught my attention and did some research. There's been a lot of talk this year with so many museums being shut down for most of the year about how museums can best access their communities using virtual space. And this project was ahead of its time and has been really successful and I think can be a great model for not just American museums using this UK model, but museums around the world. I think you'll enjoy hearing David's passion for this project in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O. ASPEN.com 
and mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. David Glasser has been the CEO and chairman of the Ben Uri Gallery and Museum in the UK for two decades, and he oversaw its recreation as the first full-scale virtual art museum and research center. The Ben Uri Gallery and Museum was founded in 1915 in Whitechapel's Jewish ghetto in the East End of London by emigre Russian artist Lazar Burson, who had previously exhibited with Marc Chagall in Paris. In 2000, a new strategic direction was built and the museum's focus went from solely Jewish artists to incorporating the wider, diverse immigrant artist experience in Britain since 1900. He and I discuss the Betzalel Academy of Art and Design in Jerusalem and their founding goal, museum relevancy in the 21st century, defining distinctive strength, doing a collections audit, being a public benefit, women refugees to the UK post-World War II, a safe house for artists, a 24% female artist collection, mainstreaming a museum strategy, how few people actually visit some physical museums, why a digital museum is so compelling, global as the new local, deaccessioning, and being brave enough. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Lovely to meet you over the over the internet, the amazing internet. It's pretty congratulations it's pretty on your appointment. Oh, thank you so much. Ah. It's, it's exciting. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, match made in heaven. Two two ambitious <laughs> organizations uh, ready for change. So, every, every recruiter's dream. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. One of the things that's been pretty incredible about the pandemic is having the time to spend exploring online and and discovering people or organizations that I might not otherwise be aware of. And I have done that a lot through LinkedIn and have had some incredible Mm -hmm. podcast guests, you know, from noticing what people are, are posting or doing online and and honestly, that's how I found out about you and the Benuri Gallery and Museum. And I'd love to start out by asking you to maybe first let our listeners know who Benuri is, and then about the museum, okay. and um, and then we can can get to more details and descriptions. Sure. Well, well, firstly, I have to tell you that there was no Benuri in 1915. It was named after Benuri Betzalel, who was the, the son of the first artist of the tabernacle, uh, going all the way back to Jerusalem through the Bible. And it was named principally this because the Betzalel School of Art was founded in 1906 in Jerusalem. Yes. And Benuri was founded in the vein and spirit of the Betzalel Art School. And I think what's very important for uh, perhaps for your listeners to understand is that both the Betzalel in 1906 and Ben-Uri 10 years later was not designed to be an art gallery or museum. They had their founding principles were much more political, uh, much more principled, and much more practical. Betzalel being to 
I mean, when I talk about this, I'm astonished at the foresight, but it was designed to give women a trade, a skill, so that they were neither dependent on their menfolk, but they were also independent of their menfolk, should their menfolk not be um, coming up and acting, behaving, behaving properly. So it would give them a sense of independence. So it was an arts and crafts education. And our founder, Lazar Berson, who was a Russian immigrant, uh, he lived in Paris, uh, as we discovered when we were doing an exhibition of uh, Jacques Lipschitz, that just somewhere in the archives of Lipschitz, it talked about his, uh, his flatmate, Lazar Berson, uh, who went to London. And we all went, oh, yeah, my God, that's us. <laughs> and he was an arts and craft artist. He was uh, basically a, a wood carver and drew the most intricate designs on wood and on paper. So there was no Benuri, there was no Mr. Benuri, but it was founded with the spirit of the Betzalel School in its mind. And that's how it started. And it started in 1916, which is the second uh, most attractive feature of these days. I want you to imagine 1916 is the second year of the First World War. No, it's not. It's the third year, 1940. The middle of the First World War. The British menfolk were on the front. And then this obviously incredibly charismatic Russian, French-speaking, Yiddish-speaking artist comes from, uh, from Paris to London. No Eurostars in these days, so uh, long journey. Anecdotally, it says to the Jewish community, which is in the Jewish ghetto in Whitechapel in the East End of London, hi guys, uh, I'm here, where do we artists exhibit? The few men folk around you weren't on the front or in the army, and the women said, "Are you out of your mind? This is this is Whitechapel in the East End. We don't have galleries here. We barely survive, and we're ten to a room. If you want art galleries, my friend, you have to go to the West End of London, not the East End of London." And that was really that was the finding sort of conversations that uh, stimulated Berson to talk to other left wing intellectuals of the East End, of which there were plenty and to find a gallery, to find Ben-Uri as a decorative art gallery. And funnily enough, not that long afterwards, with the vision of being a national Jewish museum of art. So I, I'm sure that most people will know, understand the word chutzpah. Uh, well, I, I think that's a great definition of chutzpah, is a Russian immigrant arriving in the East End of London in the second year, second, in the middle of the First World War, uh, selling a concept that there could be a national Jewish museum of art in the United Kingdom. And, and, he, and he, nam, he, he didn't, but we damn nearly did <laughs> get there. That's the background. You know, I didn't know about the idea that the Betzalov School had been founded kind of by and, and for women and to give women a trade. And, you know, I don't know if if you notice this, but that was one of the things that was a, a key factor in my decision to go to the Orange County Museum of Art was the idea that the organization had been founded by 13 women, and that was 60 years ago. And right. I thought that was incredibly progressive, but in well, the it, it, early, I mean, early part of the century, even more progressive. Well, I mean, the, the, the best seller was founded by Boris Schatz, and he and his cohorts from uh, Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Austria particularly, were great Zionists, and um, part of their uh, raison d'etre was that they would actually address and provide skilled training to women. It wasn't their soul, but it was uh, very much a part of their raison d'etre. 
which I find uh, incredible, but also deeply inspiring because there's a sense of equality that was recognized that wasn't there and should be there. Yes, great. You have been with the museum in the role of chairman and CEO for, for 20 years, but then recently you've also become the head of digital. And one of the things that caught my eye was this idea that this is the first fully digital or full-scale virtual art museum. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The First of all, you're correct. It's 20 years. I never set it out. Set Congratulations. Out for 20 <laughs> years. Uh, but but Benury, as all institutions, have a have an amazing ability to get under your fingernails and it doesn't matter what you what treatment you have you can't get it from out of your fingernails so it becomes part of the dna as museums become part of our dna they definitely yeah. do yeah um, it's a long story basically we didn't set out to become a digital institution it was by default necessarily rather than design although obviously it became the major feature of design so let me answer your question first, and then if I may, just give you a little bit of the background. Please. So the, the reason why I, I'm still chairman and I guess chief executive, but we now have I've handed over the mantle of directorship to Sarah McDougall, who has been with us now for 18 years, uh, a remarkable scholar, an expert on emigre artists, and and the and she has headed up the Benary Research Unit, which I'll talk about later if I may, for the last couple of years. And she's supported by another long-term colleague, Rachel Dixon, uh, who's another fine scholar and a senior research manager in the research unit. And she's also her expertise is on emigre artists, which is of course the Benary focus and, and expertise. So that's uh, goes without saying. So I'm gradually handing over the baton and I'm maintaining responsibility to her, if you like, and the board for the digital transformation and also for the development of the Arts and Health Institute. So as each stage goes and as each month goes, I'm handing over more and more to Sarah uh, and the museum will be in uh, very safe and very, very great hands uh, with the team that we've built. So that's the current status. That's why we're talking during this interim period. I hope in a year's time that if the board still wish me to be there, I'll be non-executive and nothing would please me more than to be watching it grow and flourish from outside the institution. So how did we get there, perhaps, is as interesting. Can I talk about that? Yes, of course. Well, Benary closed in 1996. It got noticed to quit its gallery in 1995. So it'd been around for roughly uh, 80 years at that stage. And it was a Jewish community institution. It was the center of Jewish cultural uh, activity, really from post-Second World War. So the, from 1915 to 1945, it was very much an art-orientated society. It left the, the creative arts when Lazar Berson overplayed his hand, I think the phrase would be, nobody quite knows exactly <laughs> How, why, or where? <laughs> but he was back on the train to Paris <laughs> after a couple of years in London, but had left a great legacy in Benary, and it really was a visual arts institution. Then, pre and post Second World War, with the dispersal of, of, of Jews, both to their deaths and to other countries, 
the immigrant community who came here from Central Europe were actually interested in culture far more than they were interested in religion. I won't labor the, the issue in terms of the difference between the Jewish community at that time and the Central European community. The Jewish community's center of Judaism was, was a synagogue. And the Central European center was, it was secondary, it was culture. Religion was quite secondary because they had assimilated. So German Jews considered them to be Germans. And that's why they never, they never really imagined that the Holocaust would ultimately come because <laughs> they were good law-abiding Germans. Um, right. And how could this disaster happen to them? So right. when they came to England, when they came to London, the, the first thing they looked up for was, was culture, obviously as well as its synagogues, but it was, where is the culture? Where is the cultural activity? And the only cultural organization that was running and flourishing at the time was Ben Uri. And it was a volunteer community organization. So, of course, members of the, uh, the immigrant community uh, volunteered. And as you know, with all volunteer organizations, as long as you can turn up at the meetings and as long as you uh, contribute more than the next person, you will be elected to all sorts of wonderful uh, officialdom. And very quickly, by, I'd say by 1950, um, the, emig the immigrant community, the, the, the European Jewish immigrants, uh, had really started to dominate Ben Uri and transformed it from being a visual arts institution to really being the first Jewish cultural center or Jewish community center. I mean, in, in the USA, you have J J J Jewish community center, JCCs. Um, so we, 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 we have one now, but we didn't have before. And even that's not called the JCC, but anyway. So Benuri transformed itself and had, for example, had an orchestra. It had, and it was a very good orchestra. It played, actually played in the Wigmore Hall, which anybody who knows London, and that's a very prestigious um, concert hall. Um, Yehudi Menuhin actually conducted the Benuri Orchestra at one stage, as a guest conductor, of course. It had a literary society. You name it, Benuri provided it. It was a Jewish cultural community centre. And all went well, all was going fine, until around the late 1970s, early 1980s, when the glass ceiling for the Jewish community in London, and, and then it spread out, of course, uh, across the UK, essentially started to evaporate. Jews became partners in city law firms and city accountancy firms, rather than being senior associates. They became partners. Jews were allowed to join golf clubs. Uh, I mean, those younger members of, of your listening base will wonder what on earth I'm talking about, that uh, Jews were not allowed to join a golf club. But, but they weren't. I mean, that's just, that was what it was. And the senior board, the trustees of Ben Uri, were also therefore allowed, they were welcomed into national institutions to be trustees. As long as they brought their expertise and a checkbook, then um, they were very welcome. That left Benuri without these doyens of the community, shall we say. And basically, the management, the, the, the trustee board of the time, continued to actively enhance what they had done already without really recognizing the seismic sociological change that was happening to the Jewish community and to Britain as a whole. And the effect was that 
the audience started to shrink and it started to narrow because the audience who were interested in Benuri were solely or principally interested in Jewish culture, whilst the accessibility of culture in the wider format became much more global and therefore people visited and engaged in other cultural organizations. And that started the, the slow regression of Benuri as a viable in terms of both in terms of audience numbers, in terms of content, and in terms of finances institution, because there were other alternatives. And Benuri never noticed it. So um, if I put it in the musical terms, Benuri kept on playing the same tune when actually that tune had uh, left charts. By 1995, Benuri was still on the fourth floor of an old synagogue building in Soho. And the synagogue building was decided because there was no community in that area was to be sold. And Benuri, which was on the fourth floor, also had to close, had to go. So it then had a, a, a bit of a nomadic life and ended up in, in the Reform Synagogue compound in East Finchley, which is a suburb of, of, of London. It's, it's probably six miles out to the centre. But as you know from uh, any major city, six miles from the centre is 600 miles from the centre. Exactly. So, um, and, and there it sat um, until... <laughs> I was going to say I made the mistake of getting involved. Not strictly true, but uh, <laughs> but there it sat until I became chairman. And and the first thing I did, a bit, a bit like your, uh, a bit like President Biden. I'm probably going to get into terrible trouble now. But I'm going to talk politics a little bit. But President Biden, Biden's first actions were to rescind some of the policies of uh, your of his predecessor, and. Um, I'm trying desperately not to say anything. And um, the first thing that I did was to arrange for Benuri to come out of the synagogue, synagogue compound, not because it was reform or orthodox or anything else, simply because I don't believe that an art museum lies comfortably within a religious environment. Mm -hmm. it, to me, they are quite separate. Uh, I obviously respect everybody's religious beliefs, but I don't believe that comfortable bedfellows is an art museum within the confines of a religious uh, environment. And that was the first thing that we did to move out of it. And then the rest is that uh, we, we continued that policy. We, and we had to sit down and really think through how do we, which was my job, uh, my new job, uh, having, having, having retired uh, really a year before, six months before um, for my business life, um, how do we recreate Benuri for the 21st century? And that's an interesting story in itself. What do you think are some of the key elements for a museum to be relevant in the 21st century? Relevance. <laughs> I mean, literally, literally relevant. I think the I think it has to be distinctive. I come from a corporate world and then a business world, which I, I operated in a, in a corporate format, if you like. So I, I'm, not a, I'm not a scholar. Um, I don't come from the museum sector, although I, I've probably gone a lot native in 20 years, but I haven't gone totally native. But to me, a museum is no different to any other product. Uh, it has to have a purpose. I mean, that's the most fundamental thing, is it has to have a purpose. And if its purpose is not relevant, then it has very little chance of success unless there is 
one philanthropist or one organization that wishes that statement to be there and it's, and it's, got, it's prepared to fund it. So for me, the and this goes back to where we started, because when we took over, uh, when I became chairman in October 2000, the first thing I did was bring a whole lot of people in, sat them down and said, what do we do? Because there's absolutely no point in reinventing Ben Uri to do exactly the same thing as becoming a Jewish art gallery or a Jewish community centre, because nobody was on the streets of London, yes, protesting that Ben Uri was closed. It was closed for five years. So they're obviously, uh, and the financial analysis of their accounts was clear. It was a, it was, it was a very minor, uh, purely supported, volunteer charity organization, which is fine, but it closed. So if we were going to, if I use the word resurrect, you'll, you'll smile, but if we were going to reborn, re give, give Benue a, a future, there had to be a real analytical strength to, to, to the strategy. So first of all, we have to define what, what we think a museum is, um, and we defined it in a particular way. We had to recognize what is our distinctive strength? What is What classification are we? What, how would we describe what our strengths are? And our strengths was not that we had, at that stage, probably eight, 900 works by Jewish artists. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a description, not a strength. Um, the strength was, and the distinctive strength was, that the vast majority were immigrants. And funnily enough, a quarter of them were women. So when we actually did what very few museums actually do, still to this day, is we did a complete audit of the collection and put them into classifications as to which country they came from, male, female, you know, whether it's first generation or second generation immigrants, which what modernists or abstract, whatever it is, every sort of analysis you can. Our distinctive qualities of the collection was that it was fundamentally immigrant-based. That makes us distinctive. That gave us a huge plus if we could exploit it because no other museum in London, no other museum in the country actually has a collection which is two-thirds immigrant-based. Immigrant immigration, yes, by Jews, only because of, 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 of two waves of persecution at the turn of the century and the middle of the century, but immigrants nonetheless. But immigration itself, of course, is a universal phenomenon, which was growing and growing and growing 20 years ago, as, as, it, as it is today, and it's a headline news today. So we had to identify what is our distinctive qualities. We then had to look at financial sustainability. How are we going to do this? Why should people pay for this? Because that's what a charity is. Essentially, that's what a charity, a museum, however you want to describe it, somebody's got to pay for it because it does not have a profit-making you know, income stream as to actually pay for everything. Otherwise, it wouldn't have to be a charity. And then what are we collecting? What is our collection? What is our segmentation? You know, how do we actually manage the business? What's the governance? What's the correct legal hierarchy? All these things, where does a charity commission come in? We had to examine and re-examine every single alphabet and you know, letter in the alphabet to make sure that we knew what we were getting into. Because there was nobody, there was, it wasn't necessary. Nobody was actually standing on the street saying, please, David Glasser and your colleagues, resurrect Benuri, bring it back to life, create a, create a wonderful institution. Nobody. So we had to make sure that we knew what we were doing, because if we were going to get involved in it, we had to see it through. Cannot ask people to give you money 
unless in business terms, you never ask people to give you money unless you're investing in the business yourself. At least that's always my principle. And it's the same with charity. You can't ask people to invest in it unless you're prepared to commit long term to ensuring that you deliver it. So that's uh, that's my definition of a museum is it's about distinctive public benefit. And if, if it doesn't generate distinctive public benefit, then why why bother? Why why is it there? Probably so many so many good things. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> probably said all the wrong things, but I, but that's 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 I believe that. I don't think you said the wrong things. I think you said a lot of super interesting things. And circling back to one of the first things that mm. you talked about was this idea of purpose. And yesterday I read this Nietzsche quote that says. Anyone who has a why to live can bear almost any what. And that gets right to kind of the heart of how we define what matters most to us and what we want to spend our lives committed to doing. And I am really interested in this idea of the collections audit and what in one way is a pivot, but in another way is really kind of a recontextualization of what you already had. and the idea that this service to women and highlighting the accomplishments of of women, maybe it's intentional to be woven into the conversation from a a bunch of these different places. But the, the fact that your collection has a significant representation of women is, again, something that's unique. Could you talk about some of those artists specifically and when works came into the collection and how they did? Sure. Well, first of all, you have to understand the great influx of women artists was post-1945 or post-1939. They they principally came from Central Europe. And what makes it really interesting is that women who came here as refugees from the Second World War, from the Holocaust, to gain admittance to this country very often, particularly if they were young enough to work rather than young enough to be uh, at school, they went into service. You know, they, they, they became housemaids. And, and one's talking about professional people as well. One's not talking about uneducated people, but it was the passport to a relatively safe transfer of residence. And the vast majority of these artists who came here did not continue their careers because they had no opportunity to continue their careers. If they had written down on their uh, immigration slip that was going to be considered whether this person was going to be allowed into the UK, uh, artist, I don't think that would have been you know, high on the UK immigration government's list. So the range of artists that we have uh, were often rediscovered by the, over the last 20 years. But the, the immigrants who came over Benury was a safe house for artists. It was designed to be a safe house for artists in 1915, 1916. I mean, that's where Jewish artists could exhibit. So women artists who who had a career in Central Europe, who came here and who'd given up their career, found that Benury was actually a place that they could resurrect their careers, albeit modestly, albeit discreetly, and albeit on on an amateur level. But some, as the years went on, particularly the young ones, then went to art school. So I, I'm thinking, for example, of an artist by the name of Eva Frankfurter. This is an artist that Benuri has focused on over many years because 
she unfortunately passed on at a very early age, in her mid-twenties, but an artist of considerable talent and great potential, cut short, of course. Uh, she studied uh, at St. Martin's, I think, with Frank Arbach, and she never really settled, but she worked in the east end of London. She, she, she left the sort of west end of London or central and northwest London and went to the east end of London. And there she, she worked at Lyons Corner House, which is a very famous old... It was a, a pre, the McDonald's of, of the 40s and 50s in terms of your big centrally located uh, easy restaurants and cafes. And there she, she worked and she also drew and painted other immigrant communities who were also working there. So she was one of the first British woman artists to actually represent the, the Caribbean community in, in, in the visual arts. So this artist who really was a, an astonishingly good artist, cut short, her potential was cut short, her life was cut short, but has left a legacy which is rather unique. What other women artists can I give you, tell you? There's so many. Dodo Bergner. Dodo Bergner was a, uh, she, she's known as Dodo, uh, but actually her name was Dottie Bergner. Uh, we did an exhibition of her. We, we worked with a German museum. We didn't know her properly beforehand. We knew the name, but we didn't know her work uh, because she was a graphic uh, designer and she worked with on satirical magazines in Germany. And a fascinating life story um, was with psychoanalysts and married one, divorced one, another one, and all this sort of business. But the the work that she did pre-Ger in, in Germany in the 20s was never repeated in the UK. She never actually really uh, resurrected her career at all. Elizabeth Tomlin, I can tell you the story about Elizabeth Tomlin because I was personally involved. My first 15 years of my, my business life was spent at Marks and Spencer's, which is a large departmental store, which is now no longer enjoying the prominence that it once did in my time. But we got this call to the gallery saying that my mother, not my mother, but this lady said, my mother uh, was a textile designer uh, for Marks and Spencer's, but in Germany, she was an artist. And would anybody like to see her work? Well, we, we had a policy because we're a tiny institution. I mean, we have delusions of world domination, but we are actually a tiny institution. We don't go to visit galleries, to, to go to visit artists. Otherwise, we spend the whole day doing that and we would have team of 10 people doing nothing else. So the answer is no, except she said, you, my mother only lives around the corner from the gallery, literally 100 yards. So I, I happened to be in the gallery that day. So I said, well, actually, I'll go. So that none of, the, none of my, 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 my professional team are uh, being distracted, and I will go. And off I went. And it turns out, because of the Mark Spencer's connection, and everything, somebody had a nice cup of tea. And I said to the artist, was lovely, but could I see the work? And literally, a suitcase from the top of a wardrobe was brought down, opened up, full of just dust, and it was just mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. The, the, the work was incredible. It was adventurous, fluid. Every description that you can imagine for a work that excites you was in this, in this suitcase. And we ended up uh, being allowed to select a number of works, one of which is on our website, all our collections on our website, but uh, all fully searchable. But it's there and it gets exhibited regularly and it gets asked for regularly because it's a portrait of a face and multicolors and it's just, it's just terrific. So, and, and I could go on and on and on on these stories. Sculptresses, you know, but most of these artists did not fulfill their potential in the UK that they had shown 
in their home countries in Central Europe. And that's part of the Benary story that we're telling. Because actually, when you are in forced migration, you don't control the terms. If you, are, if you migrate for economic reasons, even political reasons, then you, you land and if you have the, uh, the capacity, you rearrange your life and you start your career again. But if you are a refugee and you come here literally with the clothes on your back, you are not in a position to actually say, well, actually, what I am and what I do is such and such. And that has cut short the career of many artists and many artists over the, across the world for the same reasons. These are the stories that make our institution so relevant to today and tomorrow because the experience of migration is universal. The circumstances differ. But when you land here, then it's really quite universal. And the number of people who are forced from their homes and forced from their countries has increased so substantially over the last few years. And that is a likely continued trajectory, unfortunately. So it, it does create a commonality across cultures to be able to share the immigrant experience. Well. Absolutely, one hundred. I always say one thousand percent, but I keep Me getting too. corrected. By you can't, you can't <laughs> I say actually it on say percent. But, yeah, I do too. But uh, but everybody enjoys uh, correcting the emphasis me, so that's of fine. it. So yeah, the, the, but you see, that's exactly. If I take you back, if I may, to when we started this journey in two thousand and one, essentially, and when we were thinking and critically analyzing a pathway, a roadmap to to establishing Benuri, not on the basis of its past, but on the basis of a productive, a distinctively productive future. That is very much the basis that we were, we were talking about, because if we looked at the Jewish community in, in London, which is a great community, it's an extremely philanthropic community, but it has huge demands at one level from those who can afford to support, but it also has the demands themselves within the community outside, never mind outside the community, because we have our own high percentage of people living in poverty. We have our own needs for care, for health, etc., for education. So it's a small, it's a small community, about 150,000 in London. And we knew that just from looking at the analysis at the Jewish Museum, which was the Jewish Museum, it's a, you know, everybody sure most people in major cities know a Jewish museum is about Judaism and, and our, our, our history, if you like, and our religion. That generated around 12, 15,000 visitors a year and needed financial support at the end of every year from a, a very well-known uh, and great supporter of theirs. So we knew that the, if we simply focus on the Jewish element, Given the fact that Benuri had already closed and nobody had come to, you know, to, 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 to force it to be reopened and finance it, knowing that the Jewish Museum was fragile, to say the least, and reliant on one supporter you know, during the 90s, then there was no point in actually looking to, 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 to reposition the Benuri as a Jewish Museum of Art uh, you know, in terms of uh, high art, away from, from the community art that it had been. So we had to look differently. And then the migration element, through the collection audit, the migration element became obvious because there was 150,000 members of the Jewish community in London, there was 2 million immigrants. 
doesn't need to you don't need a you don't need a computer or, or, or an excel spreadsheet to work out where the market is where exactly. the potential audience is where the potential public benefit is so i used to describe it uh, when i first used to knock on doors to try and raise money for this uh, this concept was that we have two choices we can have a corner shop within gold is green which was a, a you know classic traditional Jewish area of Northwest London, or we can have a concession in Selfridges. One thing's for sure is we will do more business in Selfridges than we will do, yes, in, in Gold is Green. Because Selfridges has a complete wide spectrum of marketplace and Gold is Green has a much narrower marketplace. So that was part of the, the original thinking that we've got this product, we've got this dominance of migrant artists, We've got this unique phenomenon of being, I think, it, I think it's 23%. Sarah Rachel will probably correct me, but it's probably 24% but it's, uh, of, of women artists in the collection. We should I'm sorry, be what percent did you say? It's 23 or 24%. Okay. Great. It's unique. I mean, there, there isn't a museum in the world that's got that. And this was, our, this was critical to our thinking in terms of our positioning, in terms of moving. And what we did was we took Benui out of the Jewish community and put it slap bang in the middle of the mainstream, focusing on the universality of migration and the immigrant contribution to, to visual arts. So we widened our, our, our horizons. And actually the strategy that we developed, which we failed to deliver, and although I'm, I deeply regret that we failed to deliver it, I'm also absolutely relieved that we failed to deliver it, was to have a museum of art and migration. Our branding is art, identity, and migration. And this would have been shared with other immigrant communities on a rotating basis, telling their story of their migration to their community's migration to London and their art and their contribution to, to the British, the rich mosaic of British culture, uh, which, is, which actually is infused with immigrant contribution. And whilst I think that would be a fantastic museum and we would have been successful, we could not raise the funds to do that. The reason why I say I'm absolutely delighted is because the last thing that I would actually now in retrospect want was to have a, as a millstone around my our necks, is a huge you know, building in central London that we had to maintain every single year, year on year. Because of course, we started off with no money, we had no endowment, and we still have no money and no endowment, but uh, that's a different story. That was part of our journey. You have shared the numbers that 82% of the 3,500 museums in the United Kingdom generate less than 200 visitors a week, according to this Mapping the Museums project, and that 50% of those museums generate less than 100 visitors a week, often less than 15 visitors a day. And now your museum is the first fully virtual museum. Talk a little bit about how your attendance was affected by that move and who visits your museum now okay, in this virtual so, space? Well, first of all, let, let me, if I may, just clarify one comment because the Mapping Museums project, which was uh, done by four academics and Birkbeck University, which is, in my judgment, the most important research document on the British museum sector that has ever been produced. And I really do pay, pay tribute to, to, to their work. 
they are the only research project that actually have got the numbers pretty much right because they've really invested in it. And the they actually say that the lower half, the small museums, which uh, represent some 50-odd percent of the sector, some 57 percent of the memory of the sector, they are zero, you know, around 5,000 visitors on average, which is about 100 a week, which is about 50 a day. We, our judgment uh, on looking at all the figures is rather more sceptical than that. We think it's actually more like that figure being much higher because, believe it or not, 45% of the 3,500 or 3,300, depending on which number you want to take, museums actually don't record their figures. And my judgment is that if they don't record the figures, it's because they are so low that they're... Um, I'm so not you really think that's an optimistic number? I, I think their number is optimistic, um, but I didn't want it to be represented that our assessment of their number is, is their assessment. But I don't think it makes a great deal of difference. If we've got 50, if their numbers are 57% of the whole UK museum sector generate on average about 5,000 visitors a year, which is you know, 100 a week, um, I think that says a great deal about the British museum sector. I think also 45% of, of UK museums could not provide visitor number figures tells another story about the UK museum sector. So that's the background. And we fell into that category. We are, uh, as the film on our website shows, when we came back, if you like, and, and sorted out our own strategy, which was to get this much bigger building, but we needed to have some presence. So we rented a small commercial gallery that had been heavily invested in in terms of transferring this shop into a gallery. So, But it was unsuccessful, the commercial gallery. So we acquired the lease and we rent the building or we rent the gallery in two floors. Uh, it's a rather pedestrian residential street in the back end of a very uh, upmarket residential area, but it's on the borders of not such a great residential area. And uh, But it gave us a presence. And uh, I remember actually seeking legal advice on the basis that if we sign this four-year lease, five-year lease, I can't remember, and hopefully we're going to be out in three, would I personally be liable under charity law for committing the charity to two more years, which I didn't mind funding, but I just wanted to know what the, what the legal ramifications were. That was how optimistic we were because I had made that That's one of the great mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the great mistakes that I made, Heidi, was that I thought just as in business, uh, three years was enough to uh, if it was if, if if a business had legs, it was enough to get it running. It may have a long more may have a long distance to run, but it was it was long enough to know whether it was going to work or not. And I just thought that a museum resurrecting a museum and repositioning a brand would be exactly the same, and I can assure you it's not. But that's a separate issue. So we were in that category of unless the national press got a hold of our exhibitions or at least gave us coverage, uh, which many did over many years, um, we got very few visitors. We were so we were only three miles from the centre. But again, we could have been 30 miles or 300 miles. And because remember, our centre has all the great national museums. That's our competition. People only have a certain amount of spare time. So unless the national press gave our exhibitions serious coverage, we would be we would be welcoming every visitor as if they were a member of royalty because there weren't that many. And once we concluded that we were not going to be able to raise 
sufficient funds to acquire a centrally located building of sufficient size and location that would make it viable, or at least give us the chance of making it viable. Once we realize that, then we realize that actually, if we have a future, it's not as a standalone institution trying to uh, compete with the nationals. And uh, that was the, uh, the start of the reassessment as to how will we create a, a body, an institution that can generate public benefit, meaningful, distinctive public benefit in the long term. And that's where the digital institution started to uh, become very interesting and ultimately the reality. In terms of numbers, Heidi, um, we, don't lo we no longer view visitor numbers to the gallery, which actually, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it's been closed now since March last year, end of March. Uh, we no longer view visitor numbers to the gallery as our key measuring stick. It's not our business anymore. We, we, we have the gallery in support of our digital presence. So we've transformed, we turned it on, we turned the standard on its head. The vast majority of museums are physically based. Their business model has to be based on their physical building because they've got the building. They have to pay for it. They have to man it. They have to operate it. So their business model actually is quite different to ours. What we've done is transformed it. Their support, they have a digital presence that supports their business, their, their physical. We have a small physical presence that supports our digital. So we've turned it around. And how so, hard was that to do? Well, if I tell you that I've never worked so hard in my life, and I'm a Glasgow grafter, I'm not one of these smart guys that can cruise. I don't have a description for it. It's 24-7. It's been 24-7, I mean, uh, for many years, but particularly the last three years. Because the first thing you've got to do is you really got to satisfy yourself that this is serious, that you can do this and that you'll get a response. And then you've got to start to actually persuade stakeholders. Uh, you've got to persuade your board. You've got to persuade your, your professional colleagues. And particularly, people who have been brought up in the sector, people who only know the physical, who only uh, recognize that, uh, I mean, I, I remember one friend and supporter uh, in New York, a fellow museum professional, well, I can't say fellow because I'm not popular museum professional that he was very distinguished director and he said to me there's no substitute for the experience of standing underneath a painting and seeing the the way the brush strokes and everything else and i i said to him and i say to him much more now i said you're right there isn't a substitute for that but what about the people who can't get to you do they get nothing because i think second best is actually in total in numerical terms way best it is for us as a small institution competing with the large. So we are now getting around 35, every month it varies a little bit, yes, but around 35 times more positive engagements. I don't mean impressions. The impressions are, are, are stratospheric, but more positive engagements. People who are on our website, moving pages, reading, we're measuring how long they're staying on a page than, than we got in terms of visitor numbers. I mean, that, I mean that's huge. I mean, to give you a simple example, only yesterday I, I have um, daily meetings with my, uh, my digital team. And um, 
we were looking at Pinterest. So every day we look at a different, uh, we, we have a specific strategy, which I'm happy to talk about if you want me to, but in terms of how we engage. But the 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 Pinterest, which I knew, I, I, I remember, I, I'm rather older than you considerably. So I, my knowledge of digital uh, platforms was uh, similar to my no, knowledge of Ethiopian politics. So Pinterest, we have more logons, more uh, activity from Los Angeles than we do from the whole of the United Kingdom. We have 8%. So fascinating. (laughs) I'm bored of the year when it comes to this, but it's just amazing. 8% of Pinterest activity, a positive activity in terms of looking and measuring and swapping things around everything else, 8% from the UK. 8% 8% from uh, Los Angeles, 9% from New York, 5% from Chicago. It also means that 92% of our in- people engaging with our collection, we've got 650 works of our collection uh, on Pinterest, are not from the UK. So I ask you, I ask you, you're a museum director. Now you're going to the Orange County Museum and you're going to create this amazing new building and that's fantastic. Okay, and you and you will be the major player in your area. You're the Orange County Museum, so you are the you're the you know you're the category killer of the area. But when you're actually a small museum competing, yes, for people's time, interest, and money, yeah, against the nationals, the major category killers, the category dominant players, does it matter in terms of public benefit whether you are local or global? Because we believe. That global is a new local. That's what the digital revolution has done. And that's, for us, does it matter whether the person that we're engaging with our collection comes from East London, West London, North London, South London, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, or Ohio, or Shanghai? Does it matter? If, it's, if it is of benefit, you know, we delivered. What would you say is your greatest learning that, you can share with our audience? Do what you believe to be in the best interest of your institution. If we're talking we're talking solely about museums, which I guess we are. It's about actually being brave enough. I'm very fortunate. I, I don't come from the sector. It's not my career. And I don't rely on, on the sector for my income. So I'm not beholden to the, to the sector in any way. So therefore, as one very senior museum director said to me when the controversy about our deaccessioning was, said, you're very lucky, you can afford to do this. I have a career to manage. Do what you believe to be in the best long-term interest of your institution. Find whatever it is that makes you distinctive and major on that and try not to be distracted because there is a I get I get probably fifty emails a day. I get my four hundred emails a day. That is from the museum sector somewhere across the world with another interesting article, or it's another company offering another interesting service with their own individual slant. Stay focused, stay strong. If you believe in your colleagues and get everybody together, if they believe unitedly that what you're doing is actually in the best interest of your institution to make that institution generate distinctive public benefit, meaningful distinctive public benefit, stand with it, take the flack. Because ultimately, those people who are issuing the flack go back to their day jobs after they've issued it. You are the people who are responsible for the institution. You are the people who are going to create that legacy. You are the people who are actually going to make sure that 
public benefit is generated. People are impacted and influenced. And that's, uh, to me, that's what it's all about. It's about delivery and it's about impact and exploiting the collection, not keeping the collection locked up in a, in a store as if it's some sort of holy uh, treasure that should never be looked at or touched. It's, it's such good advice because when you're trying to do something new and something which is truly disruptive and truly innovative, it's going to generate a lot of noise. It's going to generate a lot of response. And you're right, it goes away eventually <laughs> once you've executed on what you know to be the right thing to do. That all the naysayers and the criticism and the haters, even, they focus their attention somewhere else eventually. It's, as you said, you know, standing tall and waiting for it to pass. Two and a half years ago, Heidi, when we we actually published our public benefit and sustainability strategic plan, okay, because that's what it was about, about public benefit and sustainability. Inside that was a whole raft of quite radical reassessments of of collection and museum uh, doctrine and policies, operating policies, including the shift to digital. You know, everybody concentrated on everybody concentrated on the fact that we were deaccessioning 600 works because these 600 works, the vast majority, had never been seen, had been lying in store for decades. In many cases, even some of the really good works, the really valuable works, had not been exhibited, barely exhibited in 100 years. That's what they focused on. Nobody focused on actually the categorization of the collection. We now have a collection that is the preeminent collection. And we have a core collection. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the fact that what we're saying is that on the preeminent collection, we've created a legal ring fence. We've taken expert legal advice. We've taken all the previous examples. We've worked through it. It took us a year that we've covered almost every angle. I'm not saying it's impregnable, but if you want to challenge it, you're going to have to have a lot of money behind you because every time you want to challenge it, we've already anticipated it and created a block. It's very safe. And then we have a core collection, and we say quite clearly that if the work is unfettered, if there is no letter of intention or commitment either from the donor or from the museum to keep it, then we, we are at our liberty to exchange that work for a better work. And now every work that we buy, we buy on that basis, and every work that we accept into the collection, we accept into that basis. Just as in my own collection, I spent 40-odd years collecting art, I may say to your audience that I started as a very young child. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what does a collector do? A collector wants to improve his collection the whole time. That's, that's, that's part of the DNA of a collector. Why should it not be the DNA of a museum? It is a DNA of a museum, but then we're stuck with this, this idea, this whole immovable object that you shouldn't, God forbid you should touch it. It's there. It's part of the collection. It should be there forever. Even if you actually, even if it restricts your ability to improve the representation of the artist, and it means it's costing you money for no reason because you're not displaying it. It's second, third, fourth, fifth best. But nobody addressed these. Nobody looked for them. Nobody, maybe people didn't think we could do it. Nobody addressed the idea that we were going digital. And those who did thought we were nuts. I'm sorry, of course, it's a tragedy. It's a great human tragedy that the pandemic that COVID-19 has turbocharged the digital revolution but it was there to be seen it was going to happen and we want Benuri to be if not at the forefront we certainly want it to be ahead of the pack we want it to be ahead of the curve so that we generate our public benefit through it. David thank you so much for telling the story of the museum and the story of your experience as its leader and 
your passionate plea and approach to the idea of cultural relevancy and creating the space to have new ideas about how we interact with culture. Digital allows us to have unlimited possibilities. And if you have the expertise, the scholarship, the creativity within your organization to be given a blank canvas that has no limit, how exciting is that? <laughs> I think the idea of limitless possibilities is incredibly inspiring and ideally what it is we all would hope to strive for. Heidi, I'm very grateful for your initiative and the opportunity and the pleasure of talking to you as uh, somebody who has held in tremendous respect and esteem in the sector. So it's a privilege and a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words and, and thank you for making time to share this story with us. I think it's really important to be told. Thank you. Stay safe. You too. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art. This episode was produced by Simon Illa. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.